0: Hey, Peter Kurt. Okay, let's check back in. Hello? Hey. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're in session, and uh, the this segment of the uh, call will begin. Uh, good afternoon, everyone at NSF. Uh, this is <coughs> from the Ontolog Forum. And We're happy to be having this joint function with uh, the collaborative expedition workshop uh, that Susan is uh, putting together. Uh, We're lucky to uh, be able to have Mr. John Bozak from Sun Microsystem uh, be our invited speaker this afternoon and his talk is entitled, uh, Governance in the Development of an OASIS Standard for Business Documents. Oh. Uh, okay, uh, maybe it's, uh, before John starts, uh, let's uh, have a chance Uh, for Susan to introduce to the ontolog uh, folks uh, what the collaborative expedition workshop is, and then uh, I can tell everyone over at NSF uh, what the ontolog forum is, and then we will uh, move on the next item on the agenda where Kurt Conrad, uh, one of our co-convenants. Okay,
1: th- thank you, Peter. Screen. Yes, I'll, I'll just uh, say very briefly the uh, uh, Collaborative Expedition uh, Workshop is uh, uh, basically an, an institution uh, comprised of uh, three different uh, organizations within uh, the federal government that are uh, keenly interested to provide a kind of a frontier Outpost that allows for a uh, crossroads of uh, communications and better understanding across uh, uh, multiple communities, and so we are drawn together by both the science part of the house and the federal government, as well as on um, the, uh, the CIO council or information technology community. And i from GSA, am part of the uh, intergovernmental solutions uh, office, and I I think I'll. Uh, not, not say more. Other than, uh, we've about become an institution. We've been strong for almost uh, four years now, and uh, this has been a valuable learning place and a place for a variety of communities to draw from, uh, build their networks, and, and uh, improve their capabilities. Thank
0: you. Uh, th- thank you very much, Susan. And maybe I'll take a chance to introduce to. You to you, your folks uh, what the Ontolog forum is. Ontolog is actually an open international virtual community of practice, and our membership uh, gathers to discuss practical issues and strategies associated with the development and application of both formal and informal ontologies. And we identify ontological engineering approaches that might be applicable to the UBL effort, which is where we actually uh, spun out of, uh, as well as to the broader domain of e-business standardization efforts. Uh, We also strive to advance the field of ontological engineering and semantic technologies, and we're here to help move uh, these uh, techniques into the mainstream applications. So, without... Much ado, maybe I call upon uh, Kurt Conrad, uh, who is one of the uh, ontolog forum co-conveners, and a person who has worked with John in the original XML working group uh, to introduce our speaker th- this afternoon. Kurt good. Th-
2: Thanks, Peter. Uh, good morning or good afternoon to everybody, wherever they're at. Um, you, c- you can read John's bio, so I don't know that I need to go into a lot of specifics on that. And... I decide the, the event that probably most simplifies John um, and his approach on a lot of this stuff, at least the one that anchors itself in my head, has to do with a meeting that he convened in Seattle, and I can't even remember exactly what year it was. It's probably about 94, 95, somewhere in that time frame. And it was after a conference. conference had wound down, and you had... It was an SGML conference, so you had all these SGML people around, and John invited them all to a meeting, and no one, I don't think, really knew what it was about. And it was at that meeting that John hatched this plan to go out and create this thing called XML. And the part that I remember the most clearly was at a certain point in the meeting, everyone's going, well, this kind of makes sense, we like the idea, but what about the ISO SGML committee? The international committee that really makes all the decisions about SGML. What are they going to do if we go out and try to create this XML thing, which at that time didn't even have a name, XML. No one knew what it was going to be called. And John said, so who's ISO? (laughs) People looked at him like, what? He said, seriously, look around the room. Who's ISO? Who's on the ISO committee that isn't sitting in this room right now? And all of a sudden the head started nodding. It's like, you're right. If we decide to do it, we decided to do it. I so decided to do it. It'll be blessed at the level it needs to be blessed. And that was pretty much where the thing took form. So so I've, I've known John for a number of years, uh, long before the XML world kicked in. Um, I found it to be really insightful at a very practical level, uh, at an organizational level, and at a technical level. And that's a pretty rare thing to find. So without further ado, uh, John Bozak.
3: Thanks, Kurt. Uh, can you all hear me? Yes, Okay. Yeah, apparently this unit I'm working with uh, has limited ability to turn up the gain, so I'm afraid this is as far as it goes. So uh, you have to adjust your speakers. Thank you very much, Kurt, for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, basically what I've got for you today is a kind of uh, two-in-one here. Uh, this, this is about the use of the OASIS process to construct a particular standard Uh, namely UBL. And uh, I'm going to use the occasion uh, to uh, give you a little overview of UBL, um, partly to inform you of something that will be coming and partly to set this in context. The the, uh, first slide uh, lays out the objectives, I hope, for this meeting. Um, Number one, to brief you on UBL 1.0, both in itself as an object of interest and as an example of a successful effort to develop a complex suite of XML specifications. I'm going to give you a little preview of what we're working on now, at UBL 2.0. Uh, review briefly a significant deployment in Denmark to show a government application. And uh, I'll be you a little bit here about the tie-in with government. Um, spend a slide or two looking at challenges uh, we encountered and for the most part successfully overcame in developing 1.0. Uh, Some of these are challenges that relate specifically to trying to do things in an international context, but I think a lot of what I have to uh, relate to you has to do with any project of this size and nature. And finally, we're going to get into uh, the OASIS process itself, um, the advantages I see of working within that process, and give you a little quick overview of that process. So if um, I make good speed here, we should be uh, done with this, within the first hour and then ought to be able to spend at least an hour on uh, general discussion. That's the idea here. Um, the format of this kind of remote presentation doesn't lend itself real well to ad hoc interruption because there's no eye contact and there's no way of, of, of handling this kind of thing very well. Um, so I'd ask you to save questions... Um, uh, Most questions you will have, Experience Teaches Me, will be answered somewhere in the following slides. So that will catch most of them, but we'll have lots of room for questions uh, after the presentation. So next slide, UBL itself, the universal business language. What we're doing here is trying to construct a royalty-free library of standard electronic business documents. And we're, we're not talking about anything very abstruse here. We're talking about purchase orders, invoices, (coughs) shipping notices, this kind of thing. The standard vanilla documents of ordinary trade. Um, And and the special thing that's going on here is we're making electronic versions of these and we're standardizing those versions using XML. Uh, This is all being designed in an OASIS technical committee and uh, the chief overriding features of that as as far as the general public is concerned is this is an open process and an accountable process. So everything we do is on public mail lists. Uh, If you want to know how we got here, you can just go to the website and and look at the correspondence. Uh, We're open to public input and comments. This is all part of the OASIS process, Uh, and we've had a, a wide variety of participation here. As I said, we're not trying to do anything um, radically different. Uh, I'm, I'm always amused in, in software uh, industry discussions to hear the word disruptive used as a positive term. People like disruptive technologies. And uh, my observation of business people is that the last thing they want is disruption. So we're anti-disruptive. What we're trying to do here is create an on-ramp into electronic commerce that anybody can pick up and use with a minimum of disruption to existing business, legal, auditing, and records management practices. So we're, we're not trying to reinvent business, um, which I think a lot of people were trying to do just a few years ago. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to take business as it is, uh, not change anybody's understanding of what they're doing, but make what they're doing a lot easier and a lot cheaper and a lot less prone to error. Now, the key way that we're going to do that is to eliminate the reentry of data. Right now, in in ordinary business transactions, uh, something like a purchase order or an invoice is received via fax or by paper. And no matter how that was created, and often th- these these things are created automatically from a back-end business system, but no matter how they get there, once they're on the other side of the transaction wall, somebody has to sit down and read this stuff in. And that's not only a terrific uh, waste of labor, it's also a prime entry area for uh, the creation of errors. And those can end up costing more than the transaction. So this is, this is the key of, of what we're trying to do here. Um, we're trying to fit the box labeled payload in everybody's B2B or, or uh, web services framework. Now, there are a lot of those frameworks um, and, and varieties of them, For example, there's the EBXML framework, which I'll touch on again in a few minutes, and there's the Web Services framework and combinations of various things. And when you go to presentations on these B2B frameworks, you're usually confronted with a slide filled with little boxes and arrows leading to other little boxes, Um, and they can become more or less complex. But somewhere in all that, there's a little box that's labeled payload, and when you ask the people in charge of these, uh, uh, architectures, what goes in that box, the general answer is, that's not our department. Somebody else figures out what goes in that box. And what UBL is basically is saying, that's our department. We'll, we'll define what goes in that box. Uh, another thing we're trying to do, again, this is in line with our minimum disruption uh, uh, kind of approach here, is we're recognizing the fact that most electronic commerce, even today, is done with a 20-year-old technology called EDI, Electronic Document Interchange. EDI is responsible for an enormous amount of, of the world's actual uh, transaction traffic. And if you if you go to uh, users of EDI, uh, large corporations, and ask them, okay, what's wrong with EDI? They'll tell you there's nothing wrong with EDI. Works great. Uh, and and. <laughs> You know, you, you find out they're not really excited about swapping those systems out. They, they cost enormous amounts of money to put in place. They've spent years debugging them. They work great. So why mess with this? Well, the answer is the current system is too expensive for anything but large corporations. So if you're a small business partner attempting to do business with a large corporation, for example, you're Supplier of widgets to General Motors, or a supplier of of uh, paper towels to Walmart. Um, this puts you in a terrible position because it's the the money it would take you to put in an EDI system is is vastly more than the amount of business you you intend to do with it. So, as a big disadvantage to the small business, from the big business standpoint, it's an equally large disadvantage because their trading arrangements are restricted to businesses the same size they are. So Fortune 500 companies can talk to other Fortune 500 companies this way, but they can't talk to smaller suppliers this way. So the key here is to take the technology we know works and create a way to uh, implement something like it uh, much more cheaply. Finally, and this is really critically important, and, and I would suggest to you that this is a critically important point of all these standardization efforts that we're engaged in, okay, is that by defining a specific set of XML schemas, we present software vendors with what they need, which is a single non-moving target uh, against which they can create cheap off-the-shelf business software. This is the key to the economic question, and it's probably key to, the, to a similar economic question in areas that aren't just the specific B2B scenarios I'm talking about. The point is, we've been through 40 years now of watching the way this works. And the way it works is you start out with a technology that is a one-off installation for every single uh, context it's being used in. It's very expensive. It takes a lot of fine-tuning and optimization, and you get a an industry that's uh, uh, built around the idea of large one-off custom installations. Somewhere along the line a cheaper alternative becomes available that does not satisfy all the requirements but moves the price point far enough to change the whole system. And we've we've seen this with we saw this with operating systems in the 60s, we saw this with uh, with programming languages in the 70s, we saw it with uh, typesetting systems in the 80s. We've seen it just recently with the World Wide Web with hypertech systems in the 90s. And it's about time that this happened to business software. So that's where we're heading with this. Um, the slide uh, number four simply indicates to you that, that uh, we've been at this a long time in our particular project. We actually started with something that had already had uh, three, different rev- or, or, or three different life cycles, um, starting back in early 1998 with government funding for a little startup called Vo, uh, NIST f- uh, uh, bankrolled that with a grant. They created something <laughs> called CBL 1.0. Vo uh, was bought by Commerce One, and they put another year's worth into that, and uh, the result is CBL 2.0 for Commerce One marketplaces. Then Commerce One teamed with SAP uh, and created XCBL, because by that time you had to have X in it if it was going to be marketable. Uh, and that's where we started. We started with the contribution of an already viable third-generation attempt at this idea uh, by Commerce One and SAP. So, you know, that's when we took it into OASIS and started the OASIS working group on this, uh, the technical committee. So our technical committee has now put in about four years of, of work into what we were originally given. Um, and I think there are lessons there where where such a thing can be applicable. I think the lesson is when you can start with something that already works, do it. You know, don't don't reinvent the wheel if you if you can help it. Um, I don't know that that applies in the current context of this discussion, but it does in a lot of others. Now, the next slide I talk about the advantages of a single markup. Uh, I don't just mean a single markup for business. I mean a this is. A magic thing that happens when you adopt, when when an entire industry or problem space adopts a standard set of XML schemas for doing something, an actual set number of tags and tag names and attribute names. Okay, Um, And a number of amazing things happen when you manage to achieve this level of standardization. You lower the cost of integration, Uh, because now programmers can actually write specific sets of code that will work in different uh, uh, contexts because they're talking about the same markup, the same schemas. You lower the cost of commercial software radically because it's orders of magnitude easier to write software for a specific XML tag set than it is to write software that will work generically with any tag set. So all of a sudden, things become radically simpler. Uh, For users, this becomes much easier because they're actually just learning a single set of tags to do a specific job, and that becomes their career, that becomes their skill set and their knowledge set. Uh, You lower the skill level required for a lot of everyday processing tasks. This is something that gets talked about very little, but in fact was one of the major reasons that practitioners like myself 10, 12 years ago with SGML got the idea to do something simpler, and, and that was simply that we knew that once you were working with a specific XML or SGML tag set, you could do amazingly powerful things by using one-line Perl regular expressions that you invoke from the command line. Okay? Um, you can just do pattern-matching things, very, very low-level, down-and-dirty, simple, one-off things that, that you then deeply impress your management with, you know, thinking that you spent two days on something when, in fact, it took you about five minutes. Uh, Again, this happens only when you're talking about a specific set of XML tags. Uh, When you do that, you get uh, another very important benefit, which is you can now standardize the training. You get a lot more uh, skilled workers. Um, I like to compare this with programming languages. We used to have in in DOD alone, uh, I'm old enough to remember when DOD alone had over 400 different programming languages. And technically, that was the right thing to do, uh, because if you want something optimized for a particular purpose, you, you uh, uh, define a programming language for that purpose. Well, we're not down to one yet, but we sure don't do that anymore. We now have a fairly small set of, of languages out in the world, and we didn't boil those down for a technical reason. The reason we uh, now have just a few commercial programming languages is so that if you're in charge of a programming project and you fall behind and you need more programmers, you can go to the nearest junior college and say, give me your 10 best Java programmers or give me your 10 best C++ programmers. Um, so th- this, is, this is an extremely important point that has nothing to do technologically. It just has to do with the actual job of getting people th- to, to produce stuff. Um, you also get standardized input and output mechanisms. I'll show you an example of this in a minute, where, where we show you standardized uh, paper output from the UBL schemas. Again, this, this and, and the same is true of forms input. Um, and this is part of what you get by defining a specific set of tags. My favorite example, and the one most people are familiar with, is HTML. When HTML came out and this first surfaced in the consciousness of people like me and Kurt and and others in the SGML world. This is about 1992. And when HTML came out, everybody in SGML said, "We recognize this. These are the tags from the examples at the back of the SGML starter kit from 1985, 1986. What's this all about? This is just a this this is just a kid stuff, you know? This is just cool. elementary school SGML. What are we talking about here?" And We tried to convince the HTML people that this was uh, entirely inadequate. This would never work, you know. We we knew better because we were doing much more complex things. And we told them, you need a generic markup. This specific tag set, boy, is going to kill you. And we were right. And because we were right a few years later, we had to develop XML. But the lesson here is the people who were right got left behind, and the people who were wrong went ahead and, and made this work. And the reason it worked was because by defining a specific tag set, even though it was very limited and not that well-designed in places, they achieved all the advantages that I've listed above here in this slide. And those advantages completely overwhelmed the technical questions of whether what they were doing was the right way to do it. Okay? Okay. So the bottom line here, and I think this does relate, I sense that this may relate to what we're trying to do with, uh, with, with the uh, uh, overall uh, data model here, the federal data model. Semantic alignment, where we, where we map this stuff back to a single semantic substrate and try and operate at that level, that's really a good thing. But, but you're not going to achieve these advantages through semantic alignment. You're going to achieve these advantages when a semantic substrate becomes instantiated in a specific tag set. Okay, I'm not going to harp on this because I've tried to make this point in front of other government groups. I remember uh, about three years ago trying to make this point in front of the Department of the Navy. and uh, uh, This is not the majority view But as as kind of as, you know, with my U.S. citizen hat on here, and then I'll take it off in a second, I say unto ye verily, verily, that uh, the attempt to solve the, the government problems through abstract semantic mappings is probably just going to be a way to allow individual departments to avoid dealing with the basic question, which is the fact that no department wants to do things the way any other department does them. Okay. So I'll get off my soapbox on that because that's not what you're here for. Next slide. Recent developments around UBL. Um, we've started a public mail list. Not all OASIS uh, efforts do that, but we did. And, and that means that developers now have a place they can go sign up for free and ask questions and, and get help. Uh, UBL was ratified as an OASIS standard back in November, not that long ago. Our naming and design rules were considered important enough to break out as a separate standard, and they're now an OASIS Standard too. as of January. We have an international data dictionary. This is very interesting. When we started releasing the first drafts of UBL, we were approached by groups in Japan and China and Korea and Spain who said, could we please create translations of, of the UBL data definitions? And we said, sure, so we organized them into subcommittees. Um, Their work is now all in one giant spreadsheet, which you can go uh, download from the uh, UBLTC page. And um, it's really quite an amazing piece of work, I must say, uh, that these volunteer groups generated. Um, And and, uh, as far as I know, it's it's absolutely unique. Um, You've got an extensive data library over 600 different elements uh, all of them defined in English and as part of the UBL standard and then for each one of those elements you have translations in traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese, Japanese, Korean and Spanish. Um, so that's, that's something to, to look at. Well um, also our naming and design rules have been adopted in a number of places, including a bunch of places that we don't know about. I mean, people have just picked up this work and and have run with it. But we do know that uh, the chemical, petroleum, and agriculture industries, real estate, uh, the U.S. Department of the Navy, the IRS, uh, and who knows who else are uh, using our naming and design rules. So this process did something right anyway. um, And uh, as of the beginning of this year, uh, UBL is now... UBL invoice is now required for all public sector uh, invoicing in Denmark. I'll talk more about this in a minute. The uh, next slide, UBL 1.0 Order to Invoice, shows the suite of XML documents and the context they're supposed to be working in. Um, This is, if anybody has done small business or even uh, procurement operations, you know this slide forward and backwards. Um, This is just the generic business process that begins with the creation of a purchase order and ends somewhere down the line with the issuance of an invoice. So your, this diagram shows basically three parties. You've got a buyer in the middle, a seller over on the right, and a recipient who may or may not be the buyer over on the left. To Just to the right of center in this diagram, those bold boxes, those rectangles, are the eight document types that are actually defined in UBL 1.0. So there's not a single schema. This is a set of eight schemas plus a, a huge schema that consists of all the reusable components. So we took a uh, – uh, uh, this is very important, actually, architecturally here and differentiates what we're doing from a lot of other similar-looking projects like RosettaNet, for example, and traditional EDI. Uh, these eight documents that you're seeing here, Um, beginning with the order and going through order change, order cancellation, dispatch advice, which is a shipping notice, uh, receipt advice, and invoice. These were not developed separately, which which was not true of traditional EDI, where each one of these documents was was developed as a separate committee uh, uh, objective. In UBL, we started, um, again, using a CBL architecture, with a very large library of reusable data components... And each of these specific document types you see here is assembled from that basket of interchangeable components. So the result of this is, from a programming standpoint, that if, if you have a program module that knows how to process an address, for example, then that exact same piece of software will work with the address in the purchase order and the address in the shipping notice and the address in the invoice. Okay? And this is one of the ways we realize that. Economies from this approach. There are a lot of other advantages to doing it this way, too, but I won't get into that. Um, Next slide uh, just puts this into context in terms of traditional EDI. I could speak for half an hour or 45 minutes about this slide, and I'm not going to. um, Just point out that uh, toward the left you have the traditional EDI components. They're all manual. There's nothing standard there. Uh, th- and, and there's nothing uh, machine readable. Most of this is not machine readable. Uh, in the center, the VAN, the value-added network, is a very expensive private network that most users end up paying forty to $50,000 a year just for rental on. Uh, over to the right, you see uh, a more generic XML version of this. This was uh, mostly components created by a joint United Nations uh, ANSI X12 OASIS effort uh, a few years ago, and uh, the part UBL plays is shown by the little box labeled UBL schemas. So this is where we plug into a- an architecture that is similar to uh, traditional EDI. We play the part that is played to some extent by the X12 and EDIFACT standard message sets in EDI. Um the next slide uh, gets us into talking about the interface between electronic and paper documents. Okay, this is for us in UBL. This is an absolutely essential part of the puzzle. How do we play with an existing world uh, that took centuries to put into place and is based on paper? Well, there turns out that there is an actual international standard representation for these paper documents. It's called the UN Layout Key, and it's been around for over 40 years. If you go anywhere in the world where documents are exchanged cross-border, you will find that they all look about the same, even though the labels that are being used are in completely different languages. Uh, And this is kind of a remarkable thing. This is the only specification I know of where the semantics are conveyed by the spatial location on a page. So... If I have uh, a a standard U.N. layout key invoice and all the labels are in Arabic or in Chinese, it doesn't matter because I know because a specific field is located at a specific place on the page, I know that's the price, okay? Um, Now, what we did in UBL, and we put a lot of work into this, was we mapped all of our basic UBL documents to their equivalent U.N. layouts, and provide these, this mapping as part of the 1.0 release. And then we created a standard, using a standard called XSLFO, we created formatting style sheets for each of the UBL documents. And the way this works is if you receive an invoice from somebody done using the UBL schema or a purchase order or a shipping notice or whatever, and you need that printed out, you can put that invoice together with the invoice style sheet, which we provide, hand that to any standard XSL formatter, and it will produce a PDF version of that that UBL document in, in this standard form. Okay, so we, we provide those style sheets. We don't provide the formatters because those are expenses, those are $500 pieces of software. What we do provide is a free set of software that will generate an HTML version that's very close to the UN layout key. So that you can just download off the web. What's the point here? The point is that what we've created here is a machine-processable data format from which at any moment you can generate an internationally standardized paper representation. And this answers the question of how do we bridge these two worlds? in the next couple of slides did I just show you an example very quickly um, the, the the one labeled example instance uh, office supply order this is the first half a page of about three pages of xml what we're looking at is the the beginning of one of the sample documents that we in, one of the sample instances that we include in the 1.0 package uh, we have a couple of different scenarios there with how, showing how you would order something uh, using UBL. So what you're seeing is our example purchase order for office supplies. And if you look, you'll see there's, a, there's an address toward the top here with the name of the oh. seller and the buyer. Um, and as I said, this is just the top, and it goes on for another couple of pages. If you take this instance and you put it together with our purchase order style sheet and you hand it off to a formatter, you get what's shown in the next slide. And that is exactly the same uh, purchase order that's now been rendered automatically on paper according to the UN layout key. And so this layout is, is now recognizable by anybody in an international context who processes paper documents. Uh, in 2.0, next slide, slide 12, Um, We're talking about some major additions to what we did in 1.0. We're going to resolve a number of issues that we put off (laughs) from from 1.0. We said we don't have to solve those to get 1.0 out the door, so let's deal with them later. Code lists are the biggest uh, issue to be resolved. We're very close to coming up with something that we think we're happy with. And I'll note parenthetically that NIST, again, has been very important to us in this connection. Uh, and we've been working closely with NIST on uh, on how to do that. Another thing we're going to have in 2.0 is we're attempting to do for input what I just showed you for output. In other words, what I just showed you was a standardized way of getting paper output. Now we're working on standardizing forms to get data in. So if you're trying to create a UBL invoice or a UBL purchase order, you, you, we're, we're trying to give you the mechanism that will just give you a standardized forms input to that process. Um, we're going to do some more with the UN layout key uh, specification. Um, one very important uh, addition here is that over the last year we've gotten very substantial input from uh, the OASIS Tax XML Technical Committee. And uh, this, now you're starting to see one of the reasons for operating in OASIS. This this completely independent technical committee that's uh, concerned with taxation and government issues around taxation has been telling us what needs to be in UBL in order for these UBL documents to meet taxation requirements. Um, And and the the hardest ones are the European taxation requirements. Um, So we'll have that. We'll also have... Uh, four new document types donated by government projects in Hong Kong and Singapore to support international shipping. And those of you who are familiar with uh, international trade will instantly recognize these old guys, the bill of lading, the way bill, the forwarding instruction, the certificate of origin. So that'll be in 2.0. We're going to have 10 new document types to extend the basic order to invoice process to include a pre-order phase where you have things like catalog and quotation and a post-ordering or that should say excuse me that should say post-invoice phase this is after the invoice and we're going to talk about payments so we're going to have you know credit note and debit note and things like that okay these represent input from two major european stakeholders the first is ida which is the european commission that Um, uh, uh, recommends standards to be used between uh, European Commission members, and the other is the OGC, which is the United Kingdom government body that defines and uh, specifies uh, business standards for use in the U.K. So we've got a lot of great input here. Uh, Next slide. I just note that we are in discussions with the United Nations body that does uh, EDIFACT, which is the, one of the basic EDI standards. I'm not going to go into detail on that except to say that things are going reasonably well right now with that discussion. We may end up then uh, in a year or two as part of the UN uh, with this. And that actually shows, if that comes off, it will show one of the basic reasons OASIS is set up the way it is, which is to quickly get something going in a proper standards environment that later on can then, if, if it looks like an advisable thing to do, be progressed up into other bodies. So we'll see how that goes. Um, in the next slide, this is starting to, to come closer, I think, to what uh, many people are in this discussion for, and that is the idea of how you mediate between many different standard representations. Here I've shown a big player in the middle, uh, that has to deal with a, a number of industries. Okay? And this could be the government. Uh, this could be the military. Uh, this could be a, a large retailer like Walmart. They all have the same problem, which is that they're all talking to multiple industries. I just grabbed six at random here, like energy, textiles, food, and so forth. In reality, this is dozens and dozens of industries for any of these big players. Um, each of these industries is developing their own set of schemas to do basically the same thing. So, for example, in automotive, we have open application group um, specifica- XML specifications, which they call BODS, uh, and that works great for the automotive industry. Over in electronics, you have RosettaNet tips, which are another set of XML specifications. For doing purchase orders and invoices and shipping notices for the electronics industry. Uh, chemical industry has uh, their own version and so forth and so forth. So this is great within each industry, but if you're the player in the middle, you can't deal with this, not, not <coughs> just off the shelf. It, there's a, uh, if, you, if you sketch out what's involved here for the big player to speak to all these different XML uh, dialects, um, you get a very interesting set of uh, a rat's nest of uh, interconnections. Uh, and if you then calculate how <coughs> many are, are needed here, the answer is n times n minus 1. In other words, for the player in the middle to construct the adapters that would not be needed to talk to n industries, that's an n-squared problem, right? And... Even if you believe that something the size of the U.S. government can keep up with, initially, with an N-squared construction problem, there's no way even an organization that size can keep up with this picture as each of these industries revises its standards on its own schedule. Okay? That's just madness. That doesn't work. What does work is for the player in the middle to say to all the people on the perimeter, guess what? You can do what you want within your area, but when you talk to us, here's what you use. Take this and use it. And of course, this is the way government has always approached this. I mean, we don't. If we're U.S. taxpayers, we don't get to design our own tax forms, right? The IRS says, "Here's the form you're going to use if you want to talk to us." Okay. Um, so this this model works pretty well uh, with the the large player in the middle. Um, and in fact, I like to remind people that. 30 years ago, this is the problem SGML was originally designed to solve, and this is the way it solved it, by coming up with a common interchange format, which in this case is UBL. So the point is, you can use what you want out there on the perimeter, but the player in the middle says, I am only going to design one adapter coming in and one adapter going out, and here's what I'm going to use, and that is the practical solution to this problem. In 30 years, we have not come up with a practical alternative to this. And um, you, I will just point out, you have exactly the same problem if the player in the middle is not a consumer, but a producer. So, in other words, if the player in the middle is a manufacturer of copy machines, um, it's exactly the same problem. Okay? If um, the player, if, if you're standing outside this picture and and looking at it from the outside, is uh, from the standpoint of a tax authority or a customs agent or a transport company, um, it's the same problem. Okay. So from all these standpoints, what you are finally, what you finally end up with is either everybody uses the same markup, or everybody pretends they use the same markup, so that the player in the middle can operate as if there was only one markup. And that's that's what we're doing with, here with UBL. A concrete example of that is the government of Denmark. Um, Denmark rolled out a mandate in, in February of this year that uh, everything uh, that you do in the public sector with invoicing has to use UBL invoice. <coughs> By April, the third month of deployment they were doing they, they had done 1.4 million UBL invoices in Denmark. Uh, they're now currently running at about 1 million invoices a month using the system, and they're on target to achieve their estimate of a saving of 94 million euros annually, just in Denmark, just from this one UBL document. Um, they uh, estimate that next year they're going to go live with UBL order for doing all government purchasing, and they expect the combined savings of these <coughs> two documents to go up to over 60 million euros annually. Now, the knock-on effect of this government requirement is absolutely stupendous because just in Denmark, for example, 440,000 businesses now have to be able to generate UBL invoices, okay? And the result of that is going to be that every software company that wants to sell stuff in Denmark has to be able to support that. So here you're seeing the very beginning of the way in which software Crosses the line from being a cottage industry with very expensive one-off implementations to being an off-the-shelf industry. This is here's where it starts, and here's how it starts. It starts when a government says, when a government exercises its central authority, according to the picture I showed you earlier, and says, "Look, you want to do business? You can do what you want, but if you want to get paid by us, you better invoice us this way." And when that happens, a whole, that, that's a snowball. And a lot of stuff starts to happen. Um, something I wish I could have put in the slide, but I don't have it in my email yet. But I know it's happening today. Is an announcement from the government of Sweden saying that from now on in Sweden, UBL invoice is going to be the default for invoices in Sweden. Okay, and that just that's just the second rotation of the snowball. And from there, it's basically, frankly, it's a done deal. Although this is going to take a couple of years to play out. And that's how that's how we achieve standardization. So the next slide actually shows how the Danes are using this. Um, so this this is from their slide set. This is how they explain what they're doing. Um, the 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 thing I want to point out here is that the goodness to the government over on the right, the government authorities, is that they now have one standard input. Okay, by saying. The UBL invoice is how it has to come in. They now can construct their systems very simply because no matter what's happening over on the left, when these things get generated in many, many different ways, and only a couple of them are showed in the sli- shown in the slide, okay, you've got a web portal and you've got a, a, an ERP system, there are two or three other ways this stuff could come into the picture. Then it could come in synchronously or asynchronously. But no matter what's happening over there on the left, as far as the government is concerned, only one thing is happening over on the right, okay? Um, so that's important. The other important thing here is the fact that, advanced as the system is, it still has to cope with paper representations. That's that thing up on the upper right called uh, PDF-based forms. So, again, this, this gives you some idea of we went, why we went to so much trouble in UBL to continuously recognize the need for paper representation. Okay, let's move on from there. Um, now we get into the part that relates really to OASIS and to, and to methodology. Um, I was asked a few months ago for, for uh, an OASIS conference to uh, share the challenges that we'd encountered. Um, and I think they're relevant here, too. Um, so this is slide number 17. Well, to start with, we just had the usual stuff. Um, this is a completely volunteer effort. Nobody's being you know, paid specifically to do this. So getting people interested, keeping those people on schedule, and so forth, um, has been a major challenge. Um, The the bullet here is it's hard to see how this kind of thing could succeed without a full-time chair or almost a full-time chair. I've been able, because of my position in SUN, because I I have a a special position uh, called, called DE or Distinguished Engineer, that's true in Sun and some other high-tech companies. What that means is that I can do a lot of things on my own. And because I could do that, I could devote a large amount of time to this. Not all my time, but a big chunk of it. It's hard to see how this kind of effort could succeed with much less than 100%. So that's, that's the first thing, uh, is, is getting away from the idea that something like this could be accomplished on a spare-time basis, that, not from a leadership standpoint. Another problem we ran into at one point was uh, people who didn't go along with the majority rule decision-making process. The OASIS process is specifically a majority rule process. It's basically a Robert's Rules of Order process. Um, and I think, uh, I devoutly believe that that is the only process that can be guaranteed to make forward progress. Okay, uh, And that is uh, not politically correct, um, within a lot of uh, a, a lot of a lot of organizations, um, uh, including standards organizations, who believe that consensus is necessary, strictly speaking, in other words, everybody has to agree. Um, and I think that is a, a recipe for non-action. And one of the reasons that uh, Oasis committees make such good progress is because they attempt consensus, but if they can't reach consensus, they move ahead anyway. They they do a majority rule vote and that's the end of that. Now um, in our case um, we had a knockdown drag out fight that lasted almost a year over one of the most classic questions there is of not not just of markup but also of computer programming, which is the difference between local scoping and global scoping. And in fact there is no right answer to that question. Um, it all depends. But for our purposes, we came to a, a very clear majority of people who said the way to go is global scoping. And a small but very vocal minority who said, no, we, we have to do it locally, we decided that in favor of the global position, and the minority um, picked up their marbles and left. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem. And there's, there's not much we can do about that except flag it as a problem. Um, secretarial support for a an effort like this is a real problem too. You uh, there there are a lot of um, overhead. There's a lot of overhead to something like this. You know, maintaining a website, maintaining a calendar, tracking issues, stuff like this. A lot of nitty project project management stuff needs to be done. And uh, the thing to, the, the 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 problem here is that. The, the uh, uh, first impulse to try and deal with this problem is to hire an admin or uh, a, a general-purpose sort of consultant and throw them at this. The problem is that even though this is fairly level grunt work in many cases, you, a, a grunt can't do it. This is the problem. So you're going to end up with a fairly high-level person, a fairly knowledgeable subject matter expert person to do grunt work. And... Um, It's hard to find volunteers to do that. Um, We managed to get through, but uh, I I do think this is a significant problem in reality and one that has to be addressed. Um, Another problem has to do with how you structure subcommittees. Um, We did the first couple of years of work with two very strong subcommittees. We had a bunch of subcommittees, Uh, so many I lost track at one point, close to a dozen of them. And, uh, but our two main ones were the Naming and Design Rules Subcommittee and the Content Subcommittee. So the Naming and Design Rules Subcommittee was a set of XML schema experts that were designing the rules for, 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 uh, for generating XML schemas, you know, things like to use uppercase or lowercase and, and a number of many more complex questions than that. The other subcommittee was actually business experts that were defining the, the actual content. You know, what what needs to be in a purchase order, okay? In theory and in concept, these groups could operate completely independently, right? Because one of them was talking about what goes into a schema and the other was talking about how they get realized specifically, right? In reality, it wasn't that clean. In reality, there were some issues that um, overlapped and the two different groups, because they were set up almost autonomously, develop different solutions to these problems and then when we tried to put them together at the end we had a heck of a time Um, and we finally resolved that by basically putting both subcommittees on hold and requiring all the decisions to be finally worked out in the technical committee itself and that worked but a lot of the advantage not all of it but a lot of the advantage we thought we were getting by hiding the work within these subcommittees um, was a trade-off versus all the work that went into the end to make it all work together so one of, the, one of the conclusions we came to um, is reflected in the fact that in, after 1.0, we have basically uh, put all our former subcommittees on hold and operated that way for a year and are now coming back. We've just created two new subcommittees. But we're doing it much more carefully, and we're requiring everything to go through the TC in a way I'll describe in a minute. And we're also relying much more on ad hoc work teams. So instead of actually formally constituting a subcommittee, um, we'll just get two or three people together who want to work on a problem, and they'll go offline and work on it and come back periodically and tell us how they're doing kind of thing. Um, so that the, there's less um, there's less organizational incentive to people to start operating autonomously. That's the point of it. There's a lot more checking back and forth. As I'll point out in a moment, the flip side of that is is another hit to the overhead. (laughs) I'll explain that in a minute. Versioning and naming was a problem for us because OASIS at that time didn't have a coherent naming or versioning um, uh, set of rules. They're they're a lot closer to that now, so in the future this might not be so hard. Um, And finally, just meeting logistics uh, in an international context. And uh, that's the next slide. The chief UBL uh, logistical challenge was um, the difficulty of holding face-to-face meetings. And I've been saying this for several months now, but I hope that in light of what's been happening with gas prices lately, people will start paying attention to this. Face-to-face meetings are wonderful. Nothing is like a face-to-face meeting. You get so much done. Just the fact that I'm talking to you over the phone rather than being there in person, and I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't able to today, Um, means that we've got much less bandwidth. If we're actually trying to discuss something, this can be a real problem. But but we're not going to have a choice. We're not going to have a choice. I don't give the face-to-face meeting model for Stan's work more than another two to three years on the outside before travel becomes so difficult and so expensive that we're going to have to give up on it. Uh, Well, Maybe we can meet once a year just to get to know each other and everything else is going to have to be done basically over the phone. Now, I like to remind people that if you do things right, phone conferences can get the job done. We spent two years designing XML in the original XML working group. It's a, it's a little-known fact that the XML working group never had a face-to-face meeting. That is the, the core group of people actually de- designing the stack. It was all done over the phone. Now, one of the reasons that worked was we had some really good people who were really good about respecting the conventions of a phone meeting. The other thing was we all knew each other before this started, so that when we were on the phone with people, we knew who they were, we knew what to expect from them, we could read their faces even though we couldn't see them. So it can be done, but it takes some work. The first problem in an international group is scheduling We have members all over the world. How do we get them all into the same phone call? Answer, you don't, because it's going to be 3 in the morning for somebody, no matter what you do. So what we've done for about the last year and a half is that we've held two meetings a week, now up to three meetings a week. And these are all meetings of the technical committee, but for purposes of, like, decision-making... We sort of consider things that reach agreement in all three phone calls to have been agreed on as if everybody were in the same room at the same time. That's how we do it. We have an Atlantic call that's tuned for people in the U.S. and Europe. It takes place at 8 in the morning in San Francisco, which is 4 in the afternoon in Brussels. We have a Pacific call, which takes place in the afternoon in San Francisco, which is right in the morning when people are getting to the office in Beijing and Singapore and Hong Kong and Perth, as a matter of fact, which is in the same time zone, even though it's a quarter of the world away. Um, and then we have lately uh, instituted a Europe-Asia call, specifically so that people in Europe can talk to people in Asia. And that's uh, in the morning in London and in the afternoon in Asia. Oh, I'm getting a lot of noise. There, it just went away. Now, the, the problem with this model is that the people running it, namely me and a couple of others, have to be in at least two out of the three meetings and they have to write up minutes very quickly and they have to make very detailed notes in those minutes and they have to make real sure that everybody sees everything. So this does work. We are being successful with this model, but the overhead of doing this, the communication of doing this is not trivial at all. It's very substantial. Um, the the short-term, the ad hoc work groups can be a big help with this because work groups can be appointed on the basis of time zones. In other words, if you have a particular problem that needs to be solved and you look and you say, oh, guess what? Um, digital signatures. We need to talk about digital signatures for a minute. Well, it turns out that the people who are most interested in digital signatures are a guy in Denmark and a guy in Hong Kong and a guy in Singapore ah, okay, so we can use the time slot that looks like what I listed here for Europe-Asia. That'll work. And they can meet on their own just as an ad hoc group and then get back to us. So there are ways of finessing this problem um, if you're flexible about appointing local work groups. Another big problem is audibility, right? And actually this is not a problem if everybody is on an individual phone. Okay? This, this, what we're talking about right now, this setting we're in right now, is a perfect example of the problem. I can hear Kurt, and I can hear Peter, and I can hear Doug, and they can hear me, and this is fine because we're each speaking into our own microphone. When we turn this back to the discussion at the end of this, to the group that's meeting in Virginia, I know that I won't be able to hear half those people because some of them are not sitting right on top of the speakerphone. Right. This is a big problem in terms of actual practical use of the phone to get around face-to-face meetings. There is a reasonably easy technical solution to it, which is to have everybody spend 70 bucks for a Radio Shack wireless microphone and hook it into a $400 wireless unit that plugs into these polycom units that sit on everybody's desk. Um, the problem is we haven't decided all to do this, And because we haven't decided to do it, we can't count on everybody showing up at the same setup. So work needs to be done here from the standpoint of audibility. Um, Another solution to the whole problem outside of phone conferences is the idea of regional work groups. Actually saying, okay, uh, this region will be responsible for attacking this part of the problem, and that region will attack the other they can meet face-to-face, each within their regions, and then you have the problem of, of integrating those solutions. And uh, we don't have the norms we need about that approach. Um, there are historical models you can point to. Uh, there were there was <laughs> a lot of time up to the present when we didn't have the kind of communications infrastructure we have now. I'm thinking, for example, of um, church groups in the United States in the 1850s. Okay, uh, academic groups the world over uh, before World War II. These all managed to get their work done according to this model of regional groups that then met in larger regional groups that then met in national committees that then met in international uh, forums. But this takes its own kind of organizational structure that that we haven't that we've sort of lost the ability to do. Uh, we may have to go back to that. Okay, let's talk about Oasis. There are big advantages to using Oasis for this kind of work. Oh, that's the siren. That must be outside the
4: meeting room there. Yeah, there you go. Our apologies. That's okay, that's okay. I just came from living in San
3: Francisco for uh, six months at the intersection of two of the busiest streets in San Francisco, and we had sirens every five minutes. Okay, so one of the biggest advantages of Oasis is it's cheap. Uh, you can join as an individual member for like $250 a year. Uh, you can join as a nonprofit organization for, I, 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 I'm not sure I have the exact latest figures, but it's like $1,000 a year. Even the most ex- very ex- expensive OASIS category, I think, is still just under 10000 a year. For a consortium, that's cheap. Okay, compare that with 50000 a year for W3C, uh, 80000 a year, depending on what you're doing in RosettaNet and so forth. So this is uh, significant. It's really easy to start up a technical committee in OASIS, and I'll, I'll touch on that in slightly more detail in a minute. There's this transparent o- process. You can never be accused of doing something off, off in a back room. There aren't any back rooms here. All the mail lists are open to the public. Um, it's a pretty clear process. Uh, Yet it offers relatively quick development. So so you've got a a nice balance here of rapidity of development while still allowing a lot of room for public review. And it's hard to achieve that balance. I think OASIS is getting pretty close to the optimum here. I I feel fairly good about that. We have, in the case of UBL, um, a publicly subscribable developers list, I don't think OASIS has created many more of those, and we had to kind of pound on them to get them to do it. But there's a precedent now, and if you've got a very large community of interest um, in the the general public, they could probably be talked into doing this. There's a two-stage standardization process, which I'll go into more detail in a minute, which uh, makes it a lot easier to do implementation testing before setting something in stone. As I mentioned earlier, it is down underneath, when necessary, a majority rule process, which uh, means that uh, you can, in the worst case, you can resolve a hard issue and move on. That's not to say you're not going to have hard feelings, but it is going to say that it is impossible, for, virtually impossible for a small minority to prevent anything from happening, which which is not the case in some other processes. You have this year... A clear, as clear as it can be, robust intellectual property rights policy um, that protects users while encouraging industry participation. My question for you guys is, how do you propose to address this? Um, The the problem that has to be solved here is as follows. There are two kinds of intellectual property to watch out for here. There is copyright-type property and there is patent-type property. The copyright issue is easy, easy, okay? All, all you do, and, and, and every OASIS document has boilerplate at the end that you can go look at if you want to, including the UBL spec. And what it says is, um, this is copyright by OASIS. You're hereby granted a license to use this any way you want to. We won't charge you for it. Um, you, and you can even create a derivative work as long as you credit us, blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's easy, okay? That's not a problem. The problem is the patents. The problem is, uh, here you go and define something, UBLs, whatever, and one of the companies participating has secretly filed a patent. They're not going to tell you about yet. And the patent is about technology that they believe, anyway, would necessarily be infringed if you implement the standard. This is a real old game. Okay, this game has been played for 20 or 30 years in various places. We saw a real good example of it with the eBXML work, where, uh, and this is actually a very nice example of the difference between the patent and the copyright issues. Uh, IBM had a uh, technology called TPAML. It was a Trading Partner Agreement Markup Language. Very fine, essential, great piece of technology that they donated publicly to the eBXML people when they were doing eBXML. And in fact, that became what's called CPP-CPA in uh, in EBXML. So good, great. A year after EBXML had been released, IBM says, oh, by the way, we've just been granted a patent on the technology of electronic trading partner agreements. And we, we weren't lying when we told you that we were donating to you TPAML. That was a copyright thing, okay? That was the spec. Sure, you can have that, but, guess what? If you implement it, you're going to have to pay us because you're going to be infringing our copy or our, our patent. And uh, that lasted about two days, and there was a hue and cry, and basically IBM said, oh, this is a terrible mistake. We didn't mean it. Never mind. It's okay. And that all got cleared up. But the point is, this is paradigmatic of the kind of problem you can run into here. Okay? And Oasis has put about two years into figuring out what to do about this, and OASIS themselves built on some really excellent work that was done in W3C on exactly the same question. So at this point, we've got about four years of collective investment in doing the best we can with an IPR policy to to address this. And the OASIS and W3C policies are state-of-the-art at this point. So one of the things you get with OASIS as you would with W three C but that's not an appropriate place to be doing this kind of spec. What you get with OASIS is about the best thought through IPR policy that you could have at this point. Um, having said that I must I must, you know, in the interest of full disclosure point out to you that none of these policies do a thing about third parties. They can't because of the way our patent system is set up. So in other words, In W3C and in OASIS, you are now pretty well protected against the scenario I just showed you as paradigmatic, where you have a company with a hidden patent. It's called a submarine patent. So you've got a company with a submarine patent who engages in a standards effort to get everybody to standardize on something that will necessarily infringe their hidden patent. That's taken care of. What's not taken care of and cannot be taken care of under the current law is the case where somebody somewhere else has a patent on something, or has a patent that would be infringed by the standard and, and just sits there and doesn't say anything um, until everybody's happy with the standard and then comes out of the closet and says, guess what, you've got to pay us because they never engaged in the thing in the first place. So all any of these policies can do is to protect you against nefarious participants they can't protect you against nefarious third parties who just sit out there and watch so but it but it is a big step forward anyway um, and has made a lot a lot of things much clearer finally um, starting up a project in Oasis means that you get a closer association with some other groups that could be useful to you um, for example uh, UBL has benefited from the fact that we could very easily talk across the Uh, across the divide with the EGov uh, Technical Committee in OASIS and the Taxation Technical Committee in OASIS. In the case of the uh, 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 DRM work, you could... uh, Do do I have the right acronym for that? Is that correct, DRM? Yes. Yes, Thank you. The reason I'm confused is because that's also a common acronym for digital rights management
0: which is not what we're talking about.
3: Which is not what we're talking about, although it's close enough to, to be confusing. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that in that work, uh, it might be very advantageous to be able to talk on a peer-to-peer basis with, for example, the TC. So that, that's a possibility. You know, John, this illustrates why you're, you're not
4: allowing acronyms in your naming and, and rules convention because <laughs> they mean multiple things to multiple people. Man,
3: Yeah. Yeah, ac- acronyms and, and, and code lists, I'll tell you. Okay, just a few more slides here. Um, this is about the OASIS-TC process itself. I should mention before we get too far into this that I labor under a really big disadvantage in talking about the OASIS process. The disadvantage is I chaired the committee that created the process. And the reason that's a big disadvantage is I had, you know, that was three or four years ago. In the
4: time since, the Oasis Board
3: of Governors, in its infinite wisdom, has been diddling with that process and twiddling and making a little change here and a little change there, and as a result, I'm in the classic position of somebody who can remember really clearly what it originally said and has lost track of what it now says, okay? So um, uh, in any detail about what I'm about to describe, you absolutely want to look at the current process itself, Okay. And Peter has linked that from the from this uh, part of the wiki. And you can just... So <laughs> please go read that if you want further detail. But here's, in general, the way it works. First of all, you have to be an OASIS member before you can play, right? And there are very uh, direct, simple economic reasons why that's true. OASIS is providing this, this uh, infrastructure in the way of mail lists and websites and administration and so forth... And it's got to be paid somehow. And so it, it, the, the incremental cost of adding a member has to be reflected in what you charge members. So there is a minimum. It can't be free. Uh, but as I said, it's about as inexpensive as it could be. The key here is that there are two kinds of OASIS members. There are organizational members and there are individual members. If you're an organization, for example, my company, Sun Microsystems, You pay a certain amount, and any number of your employees can function as members, that is to say, as as members of technical committees and so forth. If you're an individual consultant, you can pay $250 a year and be an individual member. At the technical committee level, there's basically no difference between those two. Um, there are some differences that I don't even want to get into, slight differences between the IPR consequences of being a company versus being an individual. And I would refer you to the OASIS IPR policy for more on that. But from the standpoint of a technical committee, everybody's the same. They all have the same vote. They all have the same voice, so forth. Um, so when, once you're either an individual member or a, an employee of, of a member organization, you can then join any OASIS technical committee. Um, And a technical committee can be started by any five OASIS members, meaning individual members or people who work for OASIS member organizations. Two of them at least have to represent organizations. So, and this is part of the process that came in later. Um, So the idea here is, You can't have, or the implication, I don't know what the idea is, but the implication is you can't start an OASIS committee with nothing but individual members. There has to be some organizational participation here. Even so, this is not an onerous requirement. There are something like 300 or more uh, OASIS organizations now, including things you never heard of, uh, fairly small outfits who, who signed up. It's not hard to get at least two of those to say, yeah, okay, we think this is an okay idea, and start one up. So it's still an extremely lightweight process in terms of starting something. Um, once you have a TC going, which, again, doesn't take more than, you know, filing the right paperwork with OASIS, they, they pretty much have to let you start it up unless, unless it's truly outrageous. Um, and once you start up, you're given your own web page, you're given your own mailing list, um, if you are big enough, as UBL is, to actually need subcommittees, you can form subcommittees, and OASIS will give each subcommittee its own web page and mailing list. So this is very, very handy. This infrastructure is really, really good to have. And um, it may not sound much like much, but by golly, if you get out into spaces uh, of some other standards efforts who are trying to operate without this infrastructure, it's really hard. So this is a very, very important benefit. The participants in a technical committee, they're they're basically three levels now. You've got voting members per se, you've got members who are not voting members, and you've got observers. The (coughs) voting members make the decisions, and they're the ones who get counted toward a quorum. The non-voting members are just like voting members, in every way, shape, or form, except for the one fact that they can't vote, and they're not counted toward a quorum. What they can be is a voting member of a subcommittee, and the distinction between voting members and non-voting members was a huge improvement made relatively recently. Is one of the one of the improvements uh, to the process that I completely heartily endorse. And um, the UBLTC was where this first became an issue. What you find in a large group that has specialized some of its areas of inquiry into subcommittees is that there are people who are perfectly willing to be major participants and contributors to the specific work of the subcommittee who couldn't care less and don't have the time to participate in the technical committee itself okay so we had for years we had to deal with this problem that we had people who were com- complete you know um, s- stalwarts in the Naming and Design Rules subcommittee or the Content subcommittee. And that's as far as their time extended. They didn't have time to then uh, attend separate TC meetings, and they didn't care. Whatever the TC decided was fine with them. They were interested in working on the specific piece of it that they had expertise in. And now the OASIS, this division officially between voting members and other kinds of members, um, uh, officially sanctions the situation where you have non-voting members of the technical committee who are voting members of a subcommittee and it works great okay and it suits everybody Um, we also have a third category called observer and an observer gets the mail from the mail list but they can't post to it and they can't say anything they can attend the meeting if people feel like letting them in but they have to sit at the back with you know and 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 be tied down with duct tape over their mouth They, they can't say anything This may seem bizarre, but in fact it is an absolutely critical part of the whole intellectual property structure because what it means is that you're differentiating people who make contributions from people who are just watching. That's absolutely critical. So, for example, we have major software vendors who are observers of the UBL work but are strictly not participants, and what that means is they're not committing themselves to any of the intellectual property baggage that goes along with a particular TC, right? So this is a key part of making the IPR thing work, even though it's kind of a pain in the neck to maintain these different categories and so forth. It, it, it is part of the solution. Um, staying a voting member, as opposed to a plain ordinary non-voting member, is a lot of work. Uh, there's a fairly stringent requirement there. What it boils down to in practice is If you miss two meetings in a row, you're not a voting member anymore. And to be a voting member, you then have to start attending regularly to the point where we can now say, okay, you're a voting member again. Um, And what it means is that there are a lot of people, in practice, there are a lot of members uh, compared to the number of voting members. In the UBLTC, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 members and somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen voting members. And uh, originally, or when this went into effect a few months ago, um, this is kind of scary. The way it's worked out has been rather good. It has accomplished the purpose for which it was intended, in that the, uh, we, we are achieving quorums consistently for the first time in two or three years. Cause, and that, that, was, that was the biggest problem with not having strict requirements for voting members, is that it became impossible to achieve a quorum. Because in any, any given meeting... We were lucky to get a dozen people. And nowadays if we get a dozen people, by golly, we've got a quorum and we can conduct official business. Whereas before, we got 12 out of 70 and we were nowhere near a quorum. Now, there are workarounds for that. There are workarounds for that. There are are committees that never will achieve a quorum in person, either on the phone or face-to-face. And they can get around that by doing all of their official business through email. So that's how we operate it. For, for the two years we weren't getting quorums regularly, is that uh, we would put a, a tentative decision out in email and then say, okay, if anyone has an objection to this, you've got one week to raise an objection. Otherwise, it will be taken as, as accepted. And that's just an extension of the basic Robert's Rules of Order uh, uh, process where the chair says, hearing no objection, we, we have now adopted this thing. So that, that is easily extended to email, and, and you can operate that way. Um, Second slide, um, or the next slide, is the first phase of the standardization process. A key aspect of the OASIS uh, process is that it's really two, two parts, two phases. The first phase is where a group of experts get together and they design something that meets with their approval as a group of experts. The second phase is where OASIS as an organization looks at it and says, is this something we want to make into an OASIS standard? So I've split this over these two slides. The first slide, the one you're looking at, which is number 21, this is where the TC work is working as a group of individual experts, and it goes through the following phases. You have working gra- drafts and number of working drafts, which may or may not be publicly visible. Remember I said everything was publicly visible? <coughs> not quite everything. And there is some debate about whether this should be allowed to happen. But the the uh, uh, interface we're using, the CAVI interface, um, which tries to provide a technical means of support for a lot of these procedural operations, it is possible to have drafts in the archive that are visible to the members and not to the public. Actually, this is probably a good thing because... A lot of the documents that get uploaded are things where nobody is sure about. You're just floating something. And you really don't want anybody out there picking this up and starting to implement it because next week you will have changed your mind, okay? So probably it's a good thing to have to be able to hide some of these things temporarily. Um, A lot of the others are public, right? And that's up to the the particular technical committee, what they want to do on a moment-to-moment basis with these things. Anyway, you have working drafts. At some point, you want to say, we approve this draft, and that's called a committee draft. That's where a technical committee has voted to approve a particular draft as a public document called a committee draft, okay? And that's not a simple majority vote. That's what the TC process, using I think its own terminology, calls a full majority. It's what everybody else calls an absolute majority. So what that means is it's not just a simple majority of a quorum. It's an absolute majority of all the voting members. So of necessity, that's almost always done by mail, just because you're addressing the, all of the voting members. Um, now, if you want to go farther with a committee draft, you schedule a public review. In other words, you submit that to OASIS management and you say, we want to start a public review on this, along with the appropriate paperwork. And OASIS says, okay, and um, that starts a review period that lasts about 60 days. We have, uh, right now in UBL, we have what we call a small business subset, and that is a uh, set of requirements um, that have to be fulfilled by, by low-level users. They're, they're they're a subset of, of all of UBL. So. We're not creating a new standard. We're just creating a profile of the existing 1.0, but we do want a public review. So it's out for public review now. That will come back at the end of the 60 days with comments or without. Um, And we have the option at that point of revising the document. Um, If we do revise, if we make any revisions, substantive revisions at all to the document, um, then we have to redo the public review, uh, but it's a shorter one and it covers only the things we revised. And that cycle can iterate indefinitely until the committee is happy that uh, it's gotten everything it could out of the public review. Okay. At some point, if the committee wants to take this further, it can make this into what's called a committee specification. Uh, this, this is a, a, a public version of the committee draft that has been through the initial review process. It's been reviewed by the public. Um, The comments from the public have been addressed, and a special majority is what the process calls it. In other words, a two-thirds majority um, in a formal vote conducted by OASIS approves this thing as a committee specification. Actually, there is a piece missing here. It's it's two-thirds voting yes with no more than one-fourth voting no, which sounds weird, but in fact is a very traditional ISO uh, criterion for passing something. So if it passes that vote, then this is now a kind of miniature standard. In other words, it has a certain level of standardization. That level is, this is a formal document. It represents the the consensus or near consensus of the technical experts who worked on this thing. It is available for general implementation, but it does not represent the opinion of OASIS as an entire organization. If you want to go for that next level, you may request OASIS to standardize it, or you could just leave it there, right? You could simply say, here it is. Anybody in the world who wants to use this, it's a stable thing. It represents our best work as a team of experts. You know, go for it. And uh, that accomplishes a couple of things. One is you don't need to go through an entire heavyweight standards approval process to create a useful specification that can be pointed to and referenced anywhere in the world and used as, a, as a, uh, an ad hoc standard, okay? The other advantage is that this gives people, gives vendors and implementers a known target, a stable reference point to implement and then try out, okay?, so the effect of this and a lot of people don't understand this about the oasis process the effect in effect what this means is there is no harm in having different technical committees create specifications that may overlap or even directly contradict each other okay because it's not that oasis has looked down from on high as an organization and said this is the one all it said is Each of these represents the the expert view of a group of people who have gotten together to define this thing, go forth and implement, and let's let the market sort it out. So that's a a very pragmatic thing. Um, That approach hasn't been used as much as it should be, partly because most people don't understand how this is supposed to work. And consequently, they see two things happening in OASIS that appear to be occupying some of the same space. They think that's a defect in the OASIS process when actually this is a feature, not a bug. The idea was to apply a certain amount of market Darwinism and let the market sort out which approach is going to work best. Um, so, there, you know, there's some, I think there's some better explanation and marketing needs to be done around that concept so people don't get upset when they see this. At any rate, when one of these or more of these uh, gets to the point where people feel it should be a standard, we go to the next slide. The next phase which is the phase of Oasis acting as an association of organizations this is this is, this is at a different level so a ATC has a committee specification say it's UBL and they want this to become a standard they submit it to Oasis with a proper paperwork this has to be in by the middle of any given month okay so um, all, all uh, so, so, so these submissions come in um and get acted upon at the 15th of the month so for the second for the for the uh uh, second half of the month in which something is submitted the oasis administration um dots the i's and crosses the t's and makes sure that you did everything according to the way you're supposed to do it and typically sends it back because something failed to get done right and there's some you know some back and forth there between the editors and oasis and uh Finally, you, you get something that's squeaky clean with regard to the way it's supposed to be done. Then, uh, at the beginning of the month uh, that's, that follows, you, uh, OASIS puts this out to the membership, and membership means the organizational members, not the individual members. I guess it gets announced to everybody, but, but in, in pro forma, this is for the, the information of the organizational members. They have the first half of the month to familiarize themselves with this, ask questions maybe, um, just get to know it. And then the second part of the month, there's a vote that lasts uh, 15 days or 16, depending on the month. Um, and those that vote is one vote per organizational member. The individual members have no votes, and each organization has only one vote. So this is a different kind of process from the phase one. And I like to compare it to vaguely to the difference between um, the vote in the House of Representatives versus the vote in the Senate. You know, It's not an exact analogy, but you have a kind of bicameral thing going on there. And both approaches have to agree on this before it actually gets to be a standard. Now, <laughs> very interesting voting rules here uh, on this slide. Uh, and these are actually a little bit more... Conventional, even than the original process at which these criteria were set at 10%. But under the current process, there are three things that can happen as the result of this vote at the end of the month when all the votes are counted. If the proposed standard gets at least 15% of the of all the organizational members voting yes, and nobody votes no, it becomes a standard and a story. And this rarely happens. Okay. The second case, which is very common, is you get at least 15% of the members voting to approve this, and you get some members voting to disapprove it. And if they vote to disapprove it, they have to provide some kind of comment explaining why they vote to disapprove it. In this case, it goes back to the TC. The TC has to review this. It has to look at the comments. It has to think about it. And then it can either say, you know, that's a darn good comment. We need to actually work on this a little bit more, and we'll be back to you shortly. And they just take it back and and rework it and restart this part of the process. Um, Or they look at the comments, and and this happened with UBL, and it happens with probably most of them. You look at it and you say either, you know, the individual comment, and you say, well, we don't think you have a really good point here because if we did, we would have pulled it back. Or we say, um, this comment was considered at length, in the development of the specification and we thought real hard about it and we're perfectly cognizant of your objections and guess what we disagree with them and we're we we already thought this through and we're going we're going to go ahead anyway we want to go ahead anyway um or for various reasons they can they can look at this and say or or they can they can look at something and say this is a really good comment but we're going to deal with it in the next version or even in the case of ubl i think this happened um We're perfectly cognizant of what you're saying. We agree that it's a problem, and we've already decided that we would deal with it in version two, and it's not necessary to deal with in version one because it causes no harm. Anyway, the point is the TC can actually decide in this middle case to say to OASIS, we've looked at the input, we've seen the comments, we've disposed of all the comments, and we want you to go ahead with standardization anyway, at which point it does become a standard automatically. The third case is when you either fail to achieve the 15% yes or you get 15% or more voting no. In that case, it fails. Uh, the TC can later come back with a revision or even not having revised it in theory, although that would be kind of a dumb thing to do uh, under most circumstances. So it doesn't kill it permanently, but you have to step back and, and start over with the process. Now, a lot of people who look at this say, what were you people smoking when you decided on this way of operating? The, the answer is actually quite straightforward. You have to remember that the process was designed to operate in an international context, right? So, um, for example, the, the, the paradigmatic example when we were designing the original process was the subway operators in Tokyo... There, and if you've ever been in Tokyo and tried to use a subway, you know that, in fact, there are nine different companies there running different pieces of the subway system, each maintaining its own schedule. So you say, okay, let's suppose we're the Tokyo subway operators and we want to come up with an XML specification for schedules, and we need to operate totally in Japanese, and the only people who will ever be interested in this are Japanese. You can do that under the OASIS process, Okay. And the OASIS process is set up to allow you to actually internationally standardize what you've done if you feel that that's a good idea. And the only way you can make that work is if most of the members can simply take it on faith that things were done right, and you rely on people objecting to it to tell you that it wasn't done right. And that's, I, I could go into more detail, but we're starting to run out of time, and I don't want to do that. Final slide lists more information. So I'm noting that we actually only have half an hour left. I'm really sorry I went on like that, um, but I'm at oh. your disposal.
0: Well, thank you very much, John. The <laughs> presentation gave us a lot of things to think about in terms of governance. So uh, since we, uh part of uh, some of us are on the phone and a lot of you. Uh, on site in Virginia. Uh, let's have both Susan and uh, Kurt moderate the question uh, question and answer session. Uh, we do have a more experimental uh, uh, system. Uh, this is from uh, it, uh, contributed from uh, Someone from IBM and Ontolog members had proposed that we try this out. So uh, this, this I've sort of uh, hoisted the system up uh, on the VNC screen. Uh, there's also a link on the Ontolog wiki page that says uh, that that allows people to lock onto it. And if you have a question, try to click on the uh, the hand, which sort of ra- er raises your hand uh, to signify there's a question. So uh, uh, I see it's someone from NS, uh, the NSF site. Oh. Uh, that,
1: that, that was just, uh,
0: uh, to ask a question. Uh,
1: Peter, I'm, I'm going to take just a moment and I'm going to collect names of people that have uh, questions here. So if, why don't you go ahead?
0: <laughs> sure. So Kurt, you take charge of those who are on the
5: phone. I anything actually have the a question? question. I'm not seeing anything on the uh, discussion list yet. Uh, Kurt, there's a reason for that. The VNC client doesn't l- let you see the discussion client, but doesn't let you actually click on the button. No, I mean, if, if you, you actually
0: uh, bring in the client from, uh, o- on your own browser locally. Yep. Not the VNC client. Okay, so
2: at this stage, I see the VNC2 has its hand raised.
0: Okay. That's withdrawn. Two questions. I mean, it's NSF. Uh, I don't have NSF one. Site yeah. Yeah. one. Who's out there?
4: This is Bran Neiman. We're going to try to uh, use both a microphone on the speaker box and a microphone in my hand, and we'll pass it around to the others with the question. Can you hear us, uh, John, and others? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you, Bran. Okay, uh, I really appreciated your talk, and it gave me some insights into uh, into the data reference model work that we're doing. Uh, in that, uh, there are two fundamental differences, uh, and I appreciate your comments on these. We're uh, dealing with uh, information sharing in the data reference model, and you're dealing with documents. There are some overlap, some differences, uh, but probably the biggest difference is. Uh, we we don't have the luxury or the authority to exclude those that want to work locally. In our context, those that want to work just within their agency and maybe maybe they never need to share information uh, with other agencies or maybe they'll do that in the future. So those are the, the two differences. And so we have had to retain uh, uh, the ability to work with both those that want to work locally and those that want to work globally. So this is... Uh, Resulted in our putting forth both a, uh, a schema and an ontology to try to facilitate that uh, and a little different model than you're pursuing. So I'm wondering if you'd want to comment on those uh, two differences or similarities that I Uh Well, this would,
3: this would probably get me back on my soapbox about uh, whether you can actually avoid getting people to standardize on uh, specific schemas. Um, and um, I am, I have developed some very uh, mossback kind of kind of uh, reactionary attitudes about this whole thing. Um, I am not convinced that it's possible to achieve the kind of data transparency we're talking about without actually getting people together and getting them to standardize on specifically what they're all going to use. Um, and I don't know whether that reflects what. Uh, the, the angle you're taking or not, I, I do know that in previous conversations on this subject, I've gotten the strong impression that most people working in the federal area are trying to sidestep the basic problem by projecting outward into an abstract layer. In other words, they're, they're stepping back one level of abstraction and saying, well, we can't get everybody to actually use the same markup for a specific uh, uh set of, of uses so we'll step back one layer and try and figure out a way to each keep their own way of doing things uh, I don't view that as the basic problem I, the, the, to my mind the basic problem is that different departments have been run autonomously they've developed their own data models for their own purposes they think that they, that no one understands their purposes as well as they do <coughs> true and they'll be damned if they're going to change the way they do things to adapt to the way somebody else does things And I do not view this as a technical problem. Um, And I am skeptical about erecting grand technical solutions to try and avoid dealing with the basic problem. Um, Now, having said that, if you ask me, okay, John, how exactly do you get all these departments to completely step aside from 200 years of territoriality and get them to work together, I do not have an answer for that. So I think my input on this subject, beyond expressing a general... Uh, grumpy pessimism um, is pretty useless.
4: (laughs) Don't let that stop you. We'll move to the next question. Uh, This is a question that probably doesn't directly affect most of us here, but uh, having been involved in standards committees before, you addressed the issues of copyright and patent. Uh, Another issue that often comes up, uh, with standards as liabilities of the participants. Does Oasis address that at all, or is it not an issue in the kind of standards you're setting?
3: Oh, yeah. It addresses that in that boilerplate uh, down with the copyright notice where in capital letters <laughs> it says that uh, they don't warrant this to be useful for anything and take no responsibility for anything that might happen and don't talk to us about it.
4: And that's sufficient. That,
3: that's pretty standard. I think you'll find that attached to most uh, of the uh, of the software agreements we never read
2: too <laughs> <laughs> okay brand uh, Peter has a question
0: yes, yes. okay uh, John uh, one of the features of I believe that's an o- oasis uh, process part of the oasis process too is uh, the uh, the thing called liaisons whereby different oasis an uh, oasis TC can sort of liaise other similar or sometimes even conflicting uh, standards body. Uh, Could you delve onto that a little bit and and tell us about its efficacy?
3: Oh, see, now there you've caught me because I'm not sure what the revised process has to say about that. Um, uh, As far as I know, the process of establishing liaisons within OASIS is what we've been doing in UBO, and if it's wrong, I sure hope... Nobody tells me, um, and that is simply we find... Uh, the, the problem with liaisons is finding somebody who actually participates in both groups, right? It's not a procedural problem. Once you found somebody who actually either does sit in both groups or is willing to sit in, in the group he doesn't currently sit in, then you just say, okay, from our side we call this our liaison, and from your side you call this person your liaison, and we're done. Uh, I don't think there's anything in the OASIS process even as revised, that makes that more complicated. Uh, although, again, you, you'll you have to read it to make sure of that. John, as this is
5: Jamie, and you're entirely right. Pardon? This is Jamie, and you're entirely right.
4: Oh,
3: hi, Jamie. Glad you're on the call. Cool. I'll just shove all all oh, questions. Oh, no, you won't. Yeah,
5: head. I mean, that, that, that's all there is to it. The, the real issue isn't about process. It's about training organizations to not get possessive and to be willing to take their work and walk it across from one place to another place so that it actually commoditizes. But yeah, so the, it's really a practical problem rather than a procedural one.
0: Okay, by the so, way, that's that uh game-fried clock, director of standards development from OASIS. Hi, Peter. Hi, Jamie. Jamie, is there
3: anything in the current process regarding liaisons with outside organizations, or is it pretty much the same?
5: You, you can do org-to-org, org, but it's much more likely that a committee will uh, will do something. The real, you know, From the standpoint of the interest of this audience, the real technology rules issue is that uh, most experiments to create new things that are sewn together like a Dr. Doolittle animal don't work. Every organization has its own IP solution, it has its own body of participants whose who's socialized, that they've gotten it past the suits, and it seems always easier to pass things along by finding people who occupy roles in both organizations than by so- trying to construct some new joint thing. The overhead in that kind of approach is almost always daunting. So we love to get people to carry things across the blood-brain barrier simply by virtue of being members of two things at once. We
1: don't one all
0: the time, but we
1: have uh, three more questions here at the NSF site, unless someone else
3: uh, looks like we might be next. Please go ahead. Okay. Dan? Uh, A quick question about the the UVL standard uh, with what you said about HCML. I I really can't quite hear that.
4: My apologies. Could you come up here better? better? Oh. Okay, so we'll go back to the... uh, The Polycom unit. We'll do all of them at the same time. Um, With reference to HTML, one of the things that progressively happened was the introduction of
5: layout information
4: and and rendering information into subsequent versions. Has there been any desire or move to introduce that sort of information into the semantics of the UBL standard? No. um,
3: What we've done instead is make use of the layering that's already given to us very nicely, actually, by the relevant W3C and ISO standards here. Um, So what we did was, uh, if if you go into the UBL 1.0 spec, which is immense, it's it's a huge document, but if you root around in there, you'll find linked from the top level a set of formatting specifications. And what we did (coughs) there was to take the UN layout key uh, equivalents of the UBL documents, go through and find every field in the paper layout that had a corresponding UBL element, specify the mapping, and use XPath expressions to summarize all the possible ways that could happen. And then, based on that, uh, uh, Ken Holman, uh, one of the participants, created XSLFO style sheets that make that happen. Um, And, in fact, this layering all worked out really nicely. Um, and uh, the, the advantage of doing this is, and, and in fact we used to have examples that show up both ways but we ran out of time to provide a complete set in the final spec. Um, actually there is, actually there are examples, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, there are, there are some examples in the final spec where we show you the exact same UBL invoice, for example, instance and show it in a U.N. layout key representation, and we show it to you in kind of a generic, what you'd expect to get from the plumbing company representation. Okay? They're, they're the same document. They're just being formatted differently. And it's so, so this is really important in being able to provide the maximum flexibility of representation from the standard electronic representation. And in, in fact, that's, that's basic to the whole SGML idea which is, is, to a large extent, based on a separation of uh, content from representation. So we've, we've gone completely with that philosophy, and, and I think it works out pretty well. well
4: so, I'm so glad no, to hear it's
3: holding up. That was one of my issues with HTML was that that separation of semantics and
5: layout kept getting violated. So here's well, right. fingers That's crossed that we don't have that issue going forward in XML, that the the that barrier holds up
3: yes and and this is an this is one of the things i was pointing to very early when i was talking about html that was wrong with html and we all knew it was wrong with html yet because it was very very simple this way for somebody to get started it that made more difference than being right so we're doing it right now but i think there's a real lesson to be learned in what happens with the dynamics of the market. And and you can get really hurt by those dynamics if you're not paying attention to that. So here's another
4: question. We're trying another microphone approach. Josh Lieberman asking about accessibility of XML, precisely um, importing of of namespaces. A more charitable view of different data models is that people can agree on common elements but have
2: their specialized elements uh, a strength of RDF and uh, approach
4: that can be taken in XML is to import specialized namespaces into the general schema. Is this allowed in UBL and what problems do you see that that solves or introduces, um, both for UBL and for XML?
3: We use namespaces a lot in UBL. Um, even within the spec there are different namespaces. Um, I... Uh, it remains somewhat. Um, this is going to be hard to explain. I I wasn't convinced in the first place that the namespace mechanism was worth the trouble. Um, it, it wasn't that it wasn't a good idea. It was that the committee, the XML, the original XML working group, and this is this is known by very few people, but it's a historical fact, uh, didn't have namespaces as part of what they were trying to do. Okay, Namespaces were dictated to the group uh, in the sense that it, we, we were told by W3C management that, that XML would not be approved unless we created a namespace mechanism. And I think I'm representing most of the members of that group in saying that we created one because we were under the gun to do so. But I believe the majority felt as I did that we didn't completely understand all the implications of it, and I'm still not convinced that we all understand the implications of it. Um, it's it's necessary, and its utility by this time I think is is beyond question, even even among people like myself who never felt terribly comfortable about it. Um, so it's very useful, but it is also very complicated, and you can get into deep trouble with namespaces. Um, this is not to say that there is a better solution to it. I don't think at this point that RDF is, is a solution, um, although give it a few more years and, and give integration and tools a few more years and enough work by people like the Autolog group and maybe maybe it'll work, okay? But I think namespaces represent the farthest reach of complexity that will work at this point and (coughs) complex enough so that it doesn't work if you're not careful. Um, I do know that in UBL we spend enormous amounts of time uh, trying to make sure that we don't stumble over our own namespace apparatus. Uh, It it can get you. And, And even some fairly obvious questions, some fairly simple questions, at least simple to understand, turn out to be very difficult versioning in namespaces
4: let's take that as an example
3: Um, when we go to create a minor version of ubl you know we we, that's what we thought we were doing in 2.0 creating a minor version we're going to call it 1.1 and and as soon as we got into it we discovered that some things like namespaces had had some embedded questions that we hadn't quite figured out yet that made no difference at all to major versions but did to minor versions so we sidestepped that whole mess by calling this version a major version, so that we could do what we needed to do and then figure out minor versioning. But one of the key questions, for example, in minor versioning, is do you include the minor? The, the, do you include the information that this is a minor version in the namespace U uh, R N? And that's not a hard question to understand, but it is really hard to figure out which way you're going to go with it. So in other words, is, is the UBL 2.1 namespace when it finally is out there, is that conceptually a different namespace from the UBL 2.0 namespace? If you say if you say yes, it is, then what you say? Well, excuse me, namespaces were at root, and everybody's, or not everybody, but a lot of people have forgotten this. The idea of a namespace was semantic. It was to say, here you have an element called ring. Well, if it's in a namespace for the chemical industry, that means something to do with benzene. And if it's a namespace for the jewelry industry, it has to do with something you put on your finger. And if it's a namespace for the mathematical uh, context, it has to do with something like a group or a field, right? And so the namespace is supposed to tell you what semantic context this thing is coming from, right? It's supposed to tell you, the meaning, in other words, the, the the sphere of meaning. Okay, so if in UBL 2.0 we define something called line item, and it's uh, written out, and we have a definition translated into five different languages of what a line item is and what that means, in 2.1, if we give that a different namespace identifier, we are saying, guess what? In 2.1, this doesn't mean what it used to mean. It now means something different. Well, that's not true. It meant exactly what. It meant in the first place. So from the standpoint of the original notion of namespaces, you say, no, we should not change the namespace urn just because we're creating a minor version, because that's telling people that it means something different, and it doesn't. And then you flip that around and you say, excuse me, I have a piece of software that is looking to the namespace to tell me whether there's something here that will behave as I expect it to in 2.1, you added some stuff that I don't know about, if I only know 2.0. So if I'm just looking at that namespace you are in, and I'm a consuming piece of software, and I see UBL2, then I'm thinking, I'm cool. And here, now you throw me something from 2.1 that has elements I never saw before. Uh-oh. Okay? And we're sitting here right now, I, and, and every time I hear an argument on this, I switch my opinion. So... Uh, and 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 th- there's no easy solution to this. this. is This is inherent to the whole thought of what a namespace is, and so I'm just pointing to this as something that we really haven't come to a common understanding of yet. I don't know if that answers your question.
4: Uh, it recapitulates a question that OGC is fighting with right now. So that was very helpful for me.
2: Okay, uh, this is Kurt. I believe that um, in a second, Jamie Price. Yep. Has a question,
0: <coughs> Jamie Park. I'm sorry, hey Jamie. Are you the same person that asked about the uh, face-to-face meeting, or I mean, I have an anonymous uh, question there. Are you the same person? Yes. Okay. Good. Great.
5: Uh, Go ahead, John. John, I, I do have a question for you. Uh, if you're working in an environment that's uh, that's government regulated, it's certainly true of the U.S. federal government, but also some others. You're, you're pregnant with some OMB guidelines and some other things that generally, uh, I'm thinking of Circular A119, uh, instruct you that you ought to, you know, if you're going to pick methods, you ought to pick standardized methods, and if you're going to pick standardized methods, uh, instead, of re, you know, instead of building, you ought to reuse, and you ought to reuse stuff that is subject to open standardization. And so you actually get into these, these process issues. So it can be a very important deliverable for, for some of these projects to be able to claim that they are subject to appropriate process. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, groups like OASIS like it when somebody takes advantage of the solutions we already have. But there's also going to be panels that just have a specialized thing and on an ad hoc basis. They have to do something. They have to approach standardization and they have to meet some kind of process rules. So I'm, I'm sure there will be people replicating these issues, you know, ad hoc sometimes. If they are, is there hope for... Uh, for the web-based, wiki, you know, uh, uh, other methods of collaboration. I mean, you, you say in your slides that we're two or three years away from the death of face-to-face. Now, if you're not looking at a highly funded project where you're, you're, you're being paid to bring people all over from focus groups and pay for all those conference bridges, it, is, is, it, we're, are we all just going to be in, in conference call hell forever, or is there some possibility for totally asynchronous collaboration as a method to get this kind of work done?
4: Wow, that's a good
3: question. Um, uh,
5: the, the, the phone hell works,
3: you know. So worst case is uh, it's not disastrous. Worst case is if we structure phone conferences correctly, if people develop norms of behavior, and that's an important part of it, um, that are appropriate to trying to keep conversations going in phone conferences. If you structure the thing so that the conferences don't get too big, and that's, that's a key practical consideration. I think we can do it, okay? I think we do have to pro- solve the issue of audibility, and I think you do have to break it down by region if you actually span too many time zones. Um, the thought of doing it completely asynchronously, I I, I attempted a, uh, uh, a line of thinking in an article that... Um, uh, I I, I worked out with another fellow and was published in Government Computer News, I think it was, uh, about three years ago. And Doug is is familiar with this because I talked about it at his uh, his seminar at Stanford where you could actually implement Robert's Rules of Order as a web server. And I still think that idea has an awful lot going for it. Um, and, and, And if it were ever implemented, would in fact allow you to do completely legal, completely orthodox, um, standard Roberts Rules of Order-type decision-making asynchronously. Our, our problem was just a very simple practical one, which was when we assembled people who were interested in pursuing this, um, the first thing we did was, was realize it would take at least a year of someone working full-time to <coughs> specify Roberts in a way that was machine processable. And there we stuck because we all had day jobs and none of us had the funding or the time to go do it. So that remains as a fairly well-specified task for someone to do. I think someone in government, for example, who could uh, convince the proper agency to fund the work uh, could have this uh, done and implemented in a couple of years. And I think it would actually allow a lot of governmental bodies to get around the face-to-face meeting problem. So anybody who's interested in that, there's a link to that from my web page on the iBiblio site. Uh, I think, Peter, you included a link on the uh, on the wiki. Yes,
6: I did. Yeah. Um, so I if have a question. Oh, this is Pat Cassidy. Hi. About Roberts uh, in, in um, asynchronous <coughs> mode. Uh, I'd had the impression that most of Roberts' rules was uh, procedures for trying to decide who has the right to speak at any given time. When you're online, that's completely irrelevant. Everybody speaks simultaneously.
3: Yes, and that in <laughs> fact was a central realization in in the in the proposed plan was that some of the some of the traditional big issues became I- irrelevant because even even uh, I mean right now or in a face-to-face meeting, if you and I speak at almost the same time, a chair has to step in and and maybe arbitrarily say which one of us has the floor online you know if my comment comes in one millisecond after yours you were first and I was second and that's the end of it so that's one area that, that uh, uh, really lends itself very well to this another area which needs to be explored further is the realization that there are a whole chunk of Roberts type uh, motions that are perceived that are, are it sort of administrative and the example I had in the paper was um uh, closing debate on a question. Okay, you could rig a web server so that the the vote over whether to close debate was happening in parallel with the discussion. Whereas with the regular Roberts uh, uh, procedure for people there in person, these things can't happen simultaneously. They have to happen serially. And so, in theory. Um, many complicated things become much simpler. On the other hand, there are some functions that require a chair uh, and cannot be automated, and it's also a very interesting exercise to figure out what those are. For example, figuring out the agenda for a meeting is a fundamental duty of the chair, and it's one that's not maybe not impossible to, to automate, but is darned hard. So it's, it's a very interesting exercise, and I think if anybody finally did provide the mechanism and said and had it properly reviewed so that the legal people said you know actually this is a if you follow this you will get exactly the same legal result as if you met in person and followed roberts then you would solve a major problem for something like 70,000 local governments i mean i'm thinking of things like school boards i'm in a place now in upstate new york where Um, uh, just local very very local government things you know like like uh, like uh, uh, zoning (coughs) boards and things like that have a heck of a time meeting when the weather gets nasty you know right there you could solve some big problems so i think there's big potential to this but some insightful foresightful type investment would be required to explore it
2: okay anybody in the uh, meeting room have a question Yes, this is Rex Brooks.
4: I'd uh, like to know what you think, John, um, about the notion of using an ontology or ontologies to map
2: the from one data model. Rex, Rex, could you get closer to the microphone, please? <laughs> I'm
4: about as close as I can get. <laughs> I, I think I got the question. Over here. It's, it's, it's over here. here biggies. Um,
3: in other words, the, the, the question I'm hearing is what do I think of, of, of ontology Technology, ontology. I I have a trouble using ontologies as a noun because I was a oh, just Leave it there.
6: Just um, leave it there. Oh, my question was, what do you think of the the
3: the notion of using an ontology or ontologies to map one data model to another one? I'm specifically thinking about the data reference model and getting around the problem of having a single markup. Yeah, that and that's what I was expressing skepticism about. Um, in theory, I think that in fact ontologies do solve this problem. Um, but my impression, um, which is refreshed every time I sit <clears throat> down and actually have a chance to go over this with somebody deeply into the into the technology, is that we're not ready to do that. Um, I part of it has to do with scoping. Um, I think it is definitely possible in something like uh, uh, you know business documents, like what UBL does, well, given enough work to eventually come up with with a, a proper uh, ontology for that that would allow this kind of thing to happen. It's just that I don't see that as being within the next year or two.
6: Yeah. Um, can I make um, a comment here, too? Um, this is Pat Cassidy again. Um, it's an issue that I'm planning to try to um, uh, work on, bring up within a, a new committee. Uh, if you Google the acronym ONTACWG, it's the Ontology Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group. We're having a meeting, October 5th, the first meeting of that group, and it will be precisely to uh, try to determine what can be done about devising a common semantic model that will allow um, proper, accurate semantic relations between different um, terminologies and so on.
3: Right. So, so to 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 finish what I was saying, I, I, it, it seems to me that ontologies do offer ultimately the solution to this my two areas of skepticism are number one when it will actually be in a position to do that and i don't think it's going to be right soon and the second one is is more pragmatic and that is i am not convinced that the amount of effort needed for a given department for example to properly construct the ontological apparatus for what they've been doing uh, in a way that enables it to map to anything else is any less than the effort it would take for them to engage in a project to simply standardize the markup and move their stuff over to it. And I am completely unconvinced about that—that that you're going to, in in reality, in any given particular situation, uh, come up with a <coughs> net benefit.
7: Uh, so, John, this, this is Nanaderevich here at Nest. Uh, it seems to me like you are equating, uh, coming up with agreed upon agreeing on a common ontology, for the lack of uh, a better term. No, I'm not. I'm talking about these as two
3: different approaches for accomplishing the ability to, to go cross, uh, cross organizational boundaries with your data.
7: But eventually leading to the same goal, is that...
3: Yeah, I, I think so. But the the, the, the the point is, you know, if... If the problem is that agency A and agency B are doing something, something close enough so for this even to be a meaningful question, and that's that's a big given to begin with. Um, if you say they're they're close enough in what they're doing that they need to, that they need this information to travel across the boundary, but they have two different formats for that information, then the two approaches that are being offered here are. Number one, they sit together in a small room for 18 months and nobody lets them out until they've come up with a markup that they'll both use. And, and then they'll go back and get people within their departments to move over to the new markup with the old data, at which point they have accomplished the task. Or they are going to map this to a third thing that they define for purposes, you know, an, a higher level construct, an ontology or a semantic registry, or whatever you want um, that will enable them to keep the formats they've been using which accomplishes a political purpose uh, and, and, and yet somehow it manages to get their data across and all I'm saying is I'm not convinced that one approach offers any practical time type labor type advantages over the other what I think you will often find is and, and I'm very much afraid that we're about to find this out where this approach is being applied just in the business standards, is you find that the things people thought were the same thing semantically and just different in format are, in fact, not semantically identical. And I don't think either approach solves that directly. I think the will lock them in the same room until they decide what they're going to do does solve it in the sense that they go, oh, you know something, we didn't mean quite the same thing by these two things, so we'd better redesign our system so that we're talking about the same thing.
6: Yeah, but but uh, this is Pat again. but uh, that uh, lock them in the room only works when uh, two organizations want to communicate with each other. If you want to communicate with multiple organizations, get okay, very messy. Of course, not. I don't think anybody argues with you. Think about let's let's get together and standardize. If you're talking about two people, two groups wanting to talk to each other, when you have many to many, then then you need a common standard of meaning. And where. Um, Uh, where I think I probably differ from what you were just asserting, is that I do think you can define a a higher-level ontology that contains all of the um, concepts in it that are required to specify in detail what these terminologies mean. And then where you get to the the issue of does it really mean what I think it means, if you have defined it in terms of the higher-level concepts of the top-level ontology, then you will know precisely what it means. And there won't be any disagreement. In fact right. you'll probably you'll probably know better than two people sitting around talking about it in language.
3: Yeah, all I'm all I'm saying is you take in different people and get the, and, and make their task be the the, uh, the exposure and resolution of the semantic differences in what they're doing expresses an ontology, and you take that same group of people and make the exposure and resolution of their issues be a specific markup that they will standardize on, I am not convinced that the former represents less overall labor than the latter.
6: Oh, no, uh, you're probably right. It probably represents more, but it's much more powerful. The result is much more powerful. Uh,
3: if the objective was to get these people to interchange data, they're done, right? Why do they need something more powerful?
6: Uh, because uh, we then uh, with the ontology in addition to just simple um, having a, a standard a standard for information interchange uh, you also have a standard which allows machines to make decisions by themselves that you, you, you give you give the machine much more capability for making automated decisions uh, and and uh, looking down the line that's that's something which, which cannot be done by a markup technique. Uh,
3: I, I agree with you, and that's why I started out by saying in theory I, I totally agree that this is possible to do, but if you look at the amount of work that it takes to get the ontology to make this all machine processable, that's the question. You know, what what is that amount of work? Do we have the resources to do it?
6: Uh, and, uh, it, it will, I agree it'll be, it will be more work than just to create a uh, standard interchange format and uh, the resources, yes, of course, that's the question. You know, you ask the question, when, when do you think it will be done? Uh, the only reasonable answer to that is how much are we willing to spend? You know, we can do it very quickly if the money is there. If the money is not there, it can take a very long time.
4: But and of John, course, John, this is Brand. I want to comment on that because in April we had Tim Berners-Lee keynote at one of our government, government conferences. He told us that we should start uh, moving to the use of RDF and OWL in the government Uh, for two reasons. One was it was designed to solve the problems that people are encountering with XML, and two, it was designed to deal with the problem of working globally versus working locally. And uh, what we're doing is a little bit different than this uh, year-and-a-half harmonization. We're starting to bootstrap our approach with with initial seed ontologies that then can be used to either execute applications – like in the case of our federal enterprise architecture reference model ontology or uh, an event ontology from, uh, from an episode that, uh, that Rex will talk about or, uh, or uh, you know, develop ontologies based on, on uh, things that we already have from government guidance or in data sets. Use those to, to execute applications and as a way to start putting forward a core common vocabulary at which we're trying to then speed that harmonization process by saying, well, what, what do you and your individual community of interest have that overlaps the core that we've put forward as a seed, seed ontology? So uh, I agree that the year-and-a-half process is, is very drawn out, but I think there's a, a way of, of doing this with seed ontologies to speed up this harmonization process.
5: How are they captured? those seed ontologies? I mean, if you don't use the RDF, that's just fine. I'm curious, in what form are they?
4: They are in RDF now, and L, uh, and actually, Peter talked recently. He's uh, He and Mark Musa, as part of the National Center for Ontological Research, have rolled out this collaborative ontology <laughs> development service and infrastructure, and it's been populated with some seed ontologies for the purposes of accelerating this harmonization process, as well as the further build out of of ontologies like the Federal Enterprise Architecture ontology and the Cancer ontology.
6: Uh, yeah, just Pat again. I just like to make one clarification. I, I didn't think that to, I didn't mean to imply that uh, using an ontology uh, is uh, versus um, a standardization of a of a messaging format is an either or. I think I think both can pr- are valuable and both can produce, proceed simultaneously. I think in fact the messaging format is more likely to be vastly more computationally efficient than, than going through an ontology, so to the extent that they can be developed and, and standardized on that they great things. just saying the ontology can do, I believe, um, the uh, standardization of exchanges as well. It yeah, just do it by a different mechanism, more complex and more time. Well
3: let me clarify okay. something too okay. before I, I guess go. we have to uh, wrap up Yeah, yeah let me let me just comment. take one brief thing on, on this Peter. Um That is, it it really depends on what your objective is. If the objective is to make decisions, uh, uh, make the machines capable of making some of these decisions, then then the issues are, number one, how much work is that really? And number two, do we really want machines doing that? (coughs) However, if the objective is let's achieve harmonization between all these different departments using a mechanism that doesn't make it look like they're giving anything up, then this makes maybe brilliant.
7: Uh, John, this is Nana Ivesich at again. Uh, just a quick question before Peter wraps it up. Uh, do you have uh, a link to the uh, this Danish and possibly Swedish uh, information on, on how they are, uh, you know, what are their experiences, lessons learned, in uh, adopting UBL for their purposes. Can that be accessed? Is that public? No. Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, the, well, it is in case of the Danish.
3: The, the Swedish, I only know by a rumor that this is going to be happening, okay? It's a pretty solid rumor, but I, I haven't seen a, 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 uh, an official announcement yet. This is supposed to actually be happening today, so we'll see. Um, with regard to the Danish experience, they have been um, very public about this because they're very proud of it. It's doing tremendous things for them. They uh, The slide you saw embedded in my presentation, I gave you the URL on one of the early slides there. Um, and if you follow that URL, you'll get uh, that presentation. They've also given presentations on this at uh, several of the uh, OASIS and IDEA Alliance events. So, for example, they uh, gave an updated presentation that didn't have the slide I wanted. Uh, at the XML 2005 conference in May... And they may have another one coming up at the XML 2005 conference. I'm not sure, but um, uh, there's also if you go to the to the uh, to the uh, UBL mail list, which you can get to through the Oasis UBL website. And I've, I've given you URLs in the last slide on this. So if you go to the website and then go to the mail list, and then you look at mail for like the last 24 hours, I sent out a message. Uh, actually to the UBL dev list listing three recent articles and a couple of them refer specifically to the Danish experience the Danes are considered thought leaders in Europe in IT so they were the early adopters here and all the governments of Europe are now looking at at the Danish thing and they're going oh wow and I I think you'll see a lot more of this over the next year or two but this is government right? I mean in, in Denmark ubl invoice is a danish law and i actually have a copy of it in danish it's a hundred pages long this danish statute that is nothing but an explanation of ubl invoice and that kind of mechanism takes a couple of years at a time to put in place the danes had a running start on this they they uh, got started two years ago on this in actually getting it passed in february as a law
7: so you'll see
0: some delay in this okay thanks Thank you very much, John. I wish we had another hour to discuss this, but uh, this has been wonderful, and uh, I, I would like to thank you for uh, spending your time with both the Ontologue Forum and with the Collaborative Expedition Workshop. Uh, and this is uh, September 23rd, uh, John Bozek speaking as an invited speaker to the Collaborative Expedition Workshop and On the Lock Forum. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye Thank
1: you,